0: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is the British Conservative MP, Penny Mordant, who, under former Prime Minister Theresa May, served as International Development Secretary, Minister for Women and Equalities, and finally, as the first female Defence Secretary in the UK government. Penny, you were named after a very imposing Penelope. Can you tell me about that? She was a Leander class frigate
1: (laughs) and I always joke that she was the first warship ever to be able to do a complete about face within her own length. Um, So uh, I suppose it destiny that I should go into politics with that uh, heritage.
0: <laughs> and why did your parents decide to name you after a frigate?
1: I come from a military family, although my father actually didn't talk much about his military service. He was in the Paris and was quite badly affected by it. But he he chose the name and uh, his he was from Portsmouth, uh, which was where the, the ship was based. I think coming from that area, you can't not feel a connection <laughs> to uh, to the Royal Navy in particular, but but to our armed forces. And uh, growing up there, I was nine when the Falklands War was going on, just very very affected by it. And uh, my father was not serving at the time, but many of my classmates' fathers were. Some of them didn't come back, so it was a uh, being in that city at that time was left a huge impression on me.
0: And at that time, when you were young, Falklands War, living in this environment, at what stage did it occur to you that girls might be treated differently to boys? I genuinely think actually
1: growing up... I really wasn't aware of that, and I think I probably had some quite enlightened <laughs> teachers. And for example, I loved football. Then there wasn't a girls' football team, but I was allowed to play in the boys' team. So they they let you follow your passions and pursuits. I think the only time I ever, as a child, faced any kind of discrimination that I can remember was I come from a Catholic family, and it was I was an altar server, and uh, quite often priests would say you're not serving today, because they didn't like women altar servers. So I remember being very cross about that. (laughs) (laughs) But generally, I didn't have that. And uh, I took part in all the activities that my my brothers would, would take part in. My father felt it very important that we were all very physically fit. So quite often, he'd take us cross country running and all this sort of stuff. So It wasn't until I hit puberty and I couldn't chest the ball (laughs) anymore (laughs) and uh, and then decided that actually perhaps that wasn't, uh, you know, playing in the boys' team wasn't perhaps something I was going to be able to continue to do. I got frustrated at those sorts of things, but I don't really remember discrimination apart from those odd incidents like the like with the the church
0: and when you were 15 you very sadly lost your mother to breast cancer that obviously changed your life and it gave you new caring responsibilities for some of your younger family members how do you remember that time and what impact do you think it had on you I think it had a huge impact and we were
1: we had no support network at all and so we were left to uh, myself and my twin brother to run a household all of the the hardships that come with that we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have a washing machine we didn't have things like that so it was it was quite tough physical work you know having to do everything by hand but then added to that the emotional strain of Trying to hold everything together. My father coped as best he could. But we had, you know, my mother was one of those people that she was the shoulder for everyone to cry on. She was just one of those people. And so we had a whole network of her friends to also support. I remember thinking at the time it was rather unfair some of the things that they were, the extent that they were leaning on her children so much. It was a very, very difficult time and I think what it taught me is that if you're, and quite often I think about it now, if you're trying to help someone who's in dire straits or who's got themselves into financial difficulty or has never worked or is facing difficult things in their life, they might be ill, they might be caring for someone who's ill, as well as having policies that are supposed to, there, to be there to help. You have to think about how you get someone to make use of things or to make the, the effort to gather the energy that they need to go and, and make a change in their life or sort their debt out or sort their housing situation out. And I think it's it really those experiences, I quite often draw on them to really think about when people come and see me in my surgeries today. How do I get this person in the right frame of mind to be strong enough, to be motivated enough to go and make those changes? So although it was tough at the time, I think it taught me some things that I I really use to this
0: day. A sidebar for Australian listeners, we don't use the terminology surgeries, but certainly people go and see their MPs uh, with all sorts of uh, questions and complaints. At this time in your life, there was you and your twin brother, 15, and younger children, how many? Yes, just one younger brother, Edward, who's five years younger than us. And you were then able to do a... Comparison about the expectations on your brother and you at this time? Were they gendered at all to pick up the household work? Was there more of an expectation that you would do it rather than your brother, even though he was exactly the same age? I think it wasn't so much an expectation,
1: but it just sort of happened. I remember my brother saying to me, you know, I see my job as looking after you and you look after everyone else. <laughs> and um, it was nice that he kind of saw it that way. And he was really a wonderful brother and very supportive. But he just, he didn't have the skills, I think, to be able to do the the wider stuff. So we we worked it out between ourselves. But I think it is something that often falls to women. We tend to step up. We tend not to think, you know, how do we divvy this up? We tend to just get on with it. And I think that's a great quality. It's a great strength. But I think one of the things that I have always seen, and I see it in public policy now, unless you really take care of women, (laughs) everything else falls over. We, you know, we want women to be strong and resilient and financially independent. And unconsciously, that doesn't always pan out because of the I was about to say the choices people make but actually they're not even choices they're they're assumptions they're just something that we we do and we're we're happy doing but it can have very negative effects so uh, I think that's something that I've I've learned and when I held the women's brief really tried to make sure that where we could influence public policy you know for example in in a divorce proceeding, yes, pensions can be taken into account, but that's not the default position. And if it were, people wouldn't have to think about it and have those conversations, which they clearly don't have. So I think it's just really recognising that and trying to make the environment that women are in to be as supportive as, as it possibly can be.
0: And then after school, you took a gap year and you went to Romania and saw uh, the dreadful conditions that there were there in hospitals and particularly in orphanages. And that kind of motivated in you a passion for politics. Can you describe that process of? deciding that politics was something you were really interested in. And many people would think coming off that sort of humanitarian crisis, the motivation would more be towards the progressive side of politics than the conservative Mm. side. Why was that different for you?
1: So I think that... My conservatism was in part formed because of the responsibilities I had at a a young age. I didn't apply to university at all, so my gap year was was not (laughs) a a kind of gap year. uh, I did eventually apply to university, but it was, I think, in part, it was because I had this moment of realizing what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I was at a loose end. My dad had actually remarried, so I thought, right, I've been working in some factories. I've got a bit of a bit of money together. I am just going to go and do something, and it, this was in the news at the time. It's about a year after the revolution. A huge problem with these institutions uh, where kids had just been left and dumped. And so I went out there and I worked initially for a winter, and then I went back a, a year later as well and continued to do some work out there. And it was. Very, very powerful to witness because, as well as all the stuff you saw on television, what you didn't appreciate till you got there was how Ceausescu's regime had actually affected how people think. The most shocking thing, and I saw some really shocking things and how these children were being treated, but the thing that left a huge impression on me was that the villagers, literally 100 meters away, didn't view these kids as human beings. And it was so ingrained in them that they were they were somehow substandard human beings, that they were, under Ceausescu, anyone who had a disability was supposed to be locked away. It was just so profound. And I just thought politics is so powerful. It can obviously do tremendous good, but, but it can also do tremendous harm, uh, not just about a system, but actually affecting how people think about things. So that at that point, I knew and I felt it very strongly that I wanted to do something that would be in that career, but I never thought that I would be putting my own hat in the ring. After that first visit, I went home, I applied to university. And I did going through university, I wasn't really involved in politics, I eventually did get involved, because as a student union president, which wasn't a particularly political post, I did some work on the university health care service and the Conservative Party got to hear about that and invited me to go and see them. But I did briefly flirt with Labour. I oh. did. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I went to I thought, right, I'm going to get sort of stuck into this because they were on the ascendancy at the time. And I went to a, a Labour education conference. And my experiences there made me join the conservative <laughs> party. I signed up the next day, so I just think uh, it was a combination of things that that made me think that actually the the values that best represent what I think about the world are, you know, fundamentally that core value of freedom, which is which is what my party stands for.
0: And your first uh, set of roles in politics were working as a. Staff member, you worked in a variety of PR roles, and then you were the head of youth for the Conservative Party under Prime Minister John Major and head of broadcasting for the party leader at the time that William Hague held that post. Now, you said before that you didn't imagine being an elected representative yourself, but you were interested in politics. Around the time you were holding these roles, did it start to occur to you, yes, it could be me, I could be the next William Hague, I could be the next John Major? It really didn't. And I think it was because
1: I I was in this, you know, what they call the war room, to make it sound more interesting than it (laughs) actually is, with all these Oxbridge graduates. And, you know, I was not considered, all talking about, you know, what seats they were going to go for and uh, all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't until a chap called Rick Nye, who was at the time he was research director for the party, and now runs the polling company Populous, he just took me aside one day. And he said, out of everyone in this building, you should run for office. Wow. You should just do it, because you'd be really good at it. And so I said, okay. <laughs> because I kind of had secretly wanted to, you know, but thought this is, obviously, I'm not cut out for, for this. So I did. I ran. And uh, I, I think so often, and, and we see it now when actually women put themselves forward to, you know, express an interest to run for office, the time it takes for a man to go on that first sort of introductory session to, to them putting their application form in to, to become an MP. It's about a for fortnight. For women, it's over a year. And uh, we sometimes lack confidence, our skill sets are sky high, but our confidence isn't is not there we are, We're always thinking, how can I you know learn more about public policy? How can I improve my public speaking? Do I need some more experience? Maybe I should go and do this, and a lot of the fellows are thinking, "I'm going to be a great m p <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> When can I start? We need to get a bit of that uh, bit of that confidence, I think. so had Mr. Rick Nye not said You'd be good. You should go for it. We may not have had a female defence secretary in the UK. So thank you, Rick. Nye.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And looking at that time, there's obviously class kind of dynamic in that Oxford, Cambridge graduates uh, being on the network. Was there also a gender dynamic in it when you looked at those networks of the people who thought, "Yes, I'm going to start putting my name on a seat," were they predominantly male as well as you know graduates of very elite universities? I think there. There was not
1: really in the the structures that selected candidates they they were obviously very conscious and and trying to help women get on. I think there's more that we could have done and still can do in terms of practical support for all candidates. It was more just at a <laughs> an everyday level. I remember um in my first role in politics and I was working first sort of paid role I was working uh, with the sort of what we call the voluntary groups of the party the sort of youth wing the trade unions those those sorts of organizations and I was in an office with a bunch of guys and because I'm nice I offered to make them a cup of tea if I was going to make myself a cup of tea and they would never reciprocate and it got to the point where they would expect me to make them tea. And there was I, I remember stopping myself and thinking, why? Why am I why how did this happen? And and I then realised very early on that I I actually, if I wanted this to stop, I just had to change my own behaviour. So when they would raise their empty mugs and tap them, I'd say yes, please, uh, milk with no sugar, <laughs> as opposed to running for the kettle. And I think that sometimes we just need to help people realise if you know, and not not fall into those those bad habits. So there was some of that, but I think you, in politics, you just, especially uh, as in any walk of life, really, you just have to really be very conscious about how you come across to people, and uh, if you want to correct that behaviour, you think what you can do to to help that person along.
0: And at the time that you were first selected as a candidate in 2003, the Conservative Party didn't have a great track record of picking women. Many would say it still doesn't have a great track record of picking women. At the time, there were only 14 Conservative women MPs, which was about 8% of the party's number in Parliament. You've talked in the past about not supporting mechanisms like all women shortlists to try and increase the number of women in parliament. In Australia, we in the Labor Party have an affirmative action target and all women shortlists have been one mechanism used to reach the target, not the only one, but one mechanism. Why don't you think those mechanisms are appropriate when the numbers would tell us that they do make a difference?
1: Because the gender issue is only one <laughs> issue. So is it right and helpful that a woman who has been to Oxbridge should trump a local guy who's not had those opportunities in life or someone who has a disability or another characteristic where we're we're lacking in Parliament to to reflect the nation? So it was that in part, but also I did feel that if we had that kind of route that ultimately would undermine women, because people would just say they're they're not there on their own merits. And I felt very strongly that that was the wrong way to go. But I think that there are, what we should have looked at and what um, I, we we have looked at and I think there's more to do, is to really ask why, <laughs> what is it that? stops the pipeline of women being as strong as it can be. Why don't we retain women better? Why did they drop out of the system? Why don't they keep going whether they've been elected or not? Those are the those are the questions we really need to focus in on and I th- have always believed that political parties of any hue don't support their candidates enough. That has a disproportionate effect on women, on disabled people, And, uh, you know, if you need more money to run or you don't have deep pockets, you you know, and generally it's it's women who will have that disadvantage, you are really disadvantaged in this game. So... I think if we supported all candidates better, we'd have we'd have some better results on that front. And it's one reason why when I held the, the equalities brief, I set up a fund for disabled people to run for office because I just felt that unless we really had a level playing field in terms of the expenses, that uh, those people would be discouraged and we need more people with those experiences in Parliament, in my view.
0: And looking at your parliamentary time and the women who were around you, you talked about retention then. What do you think are the big challenges for retention? Is balancing work and family life as a parliamentarian one of them? Yes, it is. And my dependents are um, for cats. I have <laughs>
1: children and I'm uh, in all. of But they're Burmese, my, aren't they? They're, they're highly demanding cats, admittedly, <laughs> but... You know, I, I look at my colleagues, male and female, and in awe at how they, they juggle the f- sort of family life and uh, and do the job as, as well as they do. We do need to support people more. Parliament is changing. It is recognising this. But it's not just sort of the demands on your time. It's also kind of the emotional demands. I know a lot of my colleagues, their kids are are upset about things that, that happen to them or people bad-mouthing them. Some probably are bullied at school. I've had in one instance a a colleague, one of their teachers actually uh, objected to what their parents were doing and and took it out on the child. You know, there are all sorts of other factors that that come into play. I do think, though, people are recognising that we need to really think about how we can support people and retain people who want to stand for Parliament, and a good example and a sign, I think, that things are changing, was with my my colleague Mims Davis. Mims was elected uh, 2015. Her family circumstances changed. She separated from her her uh, partner and was really struggling to be the mum she wanted to be and also serve in the seat that she'd been elected to because in effect she was living in three places. And the party did something very unusual and it allowed her to try for another seat. Normally it wouldn't do that, but it did and she got it and it was the seat where her kids are, are based. So that is wonderful because she's a really great woman MP, she's a junior minister, she's got a stellar career ahead of her and she's someone who just has, she's a really passionate champion for for women. I think if we'd lost her it would have been dreadful. So that's a sign that actually things are changing a bit.
0: One thing that unfortunately has changed for the worse though is the degree of online abuse that women MPs get and there's no doubt that while all MPs get criticism and would look down at their social media from time to time and see something vile said that it is disproportionately directed at women. And in the lead up to the British election campaign, a number of quite high profile women who were you know, relatively early in their careers, could have gone on and, and served and uh, had good political careers, said that they were not going to recontest the election. And a number of them pointed to not only the online abuse, but the fact that some of those threats go live in the real world and create security issues for them and their families. How Have you experienced that? And what do you think we can do about it? So I think the first thing I would say is that with all the downsides to the job, they
1: are tiny in comparison to the upsides. And so if anyone is listening to this and wants to run for office,
0: go for it. (laughs) Um, Listen to Rick Nye. It is very important to say that, and I absolutely, wholeheartedly, 100% agree with that. Well,
1: no thank you because I think that is um, sometimes it, that gets lost because understandably everyone gets focused on the on the negatives. My own experiences I have to say I feel safer today than I have done at any previous point of being an MP. When I first got elected I, I've had lots of hassle from people but it was one individual who eventually got a convicted sentence and he started out by in, an, in a 12-month period I had over 500 threats and they were posted to my home really unpleasant stuff made out you know collages all this sort of stuff it was very very unpleasant and I went to the police about it and their attitude. This is sort of back in 2010 well you just got to kind of expect this haven't you one bright spark, a police officer said, actually, we can investigate this because he's defrauding the post office because he was sending me these threats in business reply envelopes. So, you know, envelopes that have been paid for by a business for you to order your catalogue or whatever. And so he was defrauding the post office. So they investigated and found that actually this was a very serious threat and uh, dealt with the individual. Today, if I'd had that same experience, they would be round like a shot and be seeing him. So I think people have learned that we we do have there's a particular type of focus we're like lightning rods as members of parliament and uh, a lot of the threats we receive are are serious and and should be investigated so i think that we are in a, a different time now and i do feel safer in that respect parliament understands that sometimes you have to extra expenses uh, because of needing to combat those those threats It is a different world than when I was first elected. I think you just have to take those seriously. You have to look after your staff. You have to think about these things and be as best prepared. But you really also, I think, need to not focus on them and and get on with the job. I could walk out of this building now and someone could do something to me. If you think about that all the time, you, you can't live your life and actually a lot of people in other walks of life, from charity trustees to school governors, they suffer too, perhaps to a lesser degree and a less dramatic degree, but they also suffer and on social media as well. And I think we when we're formulating ways of combating this, we need to not just think about politicians but the broader broader range of people who are quite often targets.
0: Women in the public eye, not just MPs, as you say, but uh, women who get a lot of those kind of threats and things on social media, vile statements... They need to make a decision about whether they ignore it or engage with it. Some reply, some go to the extent of trying to track who's sending it and even invite them for a conversation to try and work it through. Others find it best to hand the device over to someone else and not even read it. What approach have you taken?
1: So I've always tended to use social media as a way of listening. There is a pressure, you know, send messages, you know, this is what you need to tweet today. This is the graphics, you know, you you need to use. Fine, fair enough. That's one way you can use social media. But actually, I use it to listen. It's really invaluable. My constituents can know what I'm doing every day, because if if I just tweet what I'm doing, they can get it on platforms that they follow. And it does give you a a snapshot about what's going on and and how your constituents are feeling about things. If you if you're following them, which I I try and do, so I think that it's a it's very valuable in that respect. I don't really engage in political debate on social media. I'll maybe put statements out on on Facebook, but I think if someone has put out a, a message or that's. Uh, what I call the equivalent of, you know, the online equivalent of talking behind your back. So you're copied in, but it's not directed to you. I, I tend to contact them, not on that platform, but I find their email address. And especially if they're also in public life or they're an academic, or it's very easy to find who they are. And I always contact them and ask them to continue the the debate there. And when people do that, sometimes they really do check themselves and think actually my behaviour wasn't appropriate. I've developed also these emojis, which I'm trying to... (laughs) get the Unicode committee to take up, because actually, I think a lot of we, we do have tools to deal with some of the really aggressive stuff. We can block people, we can report people. There are botometers that you can get now that, you know, that uh, sounds very racy, but uh, it's actually, you know, you can tell if, if it's a genuine person, you can get the, the odds on whether this is actually a not, a not a human being or a Russian troll farm or, you know, all these things. But it's the low-level rudeness that I think that gives permission for some of the other stuff to take place that is actually very corrosive and very hard to tackle. So I'm trying to help us develop some norms so that kind of talking behind your back a situation is recognised as, as bad form.
0: And so the emojis would be what you send back if you have that kind of experience online.
1: Yeah, so you can you can just rather than engage with someone and as a politician sometimes if you get a tweet that you desperately want to engage with, it's actually not in your interest to because it just amplifies what they've said. You're never going to win an argument with, you know, only so many characters to use on complex so it's it's just not worth you doing. But if you could just send them an emoji that was understood as, you know, that's not on or this is anonymous abuse or something that is recognised and consistent. Or if, if, for example, one of my colleagues who I, you know, I'm friends with oversteps the mark and I want to call them out, but maybe it's hard to have that kind of conversation with them, I can just DM them one of these things. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think it may take off, it may not, but I think we need to find ways of getting this to be more like real life because in real life we don't do
0: these things because... We know that they're not good. I wish you well in that campaign (laughs) and I'm very supportive of it. I want to turn now to your ministerial career. You were a junior minister, you progressed to Cabinet in 2017 and you were responsible for the British Overseas Development Budget, international development, and you also became Minister for Women and Equalities. And when you held both of those portfolios, you said we should recognise gender equality as one of the great human rights issues of our time. What did you mean by that and how did you think your work in those portfolios could further that great rights issue of our time?
1: Well, as well as addressing the inequalities that women face around the world, which is a good and right thing to do, women are the entire margin of victory. I mean, if you you take any of the global goals, anything that you're trying to get done in the world, trying to reduce conflict, if you look after women if you give women what they need to thrive if you involve women these things will be solved without that they won't be so that's just so fundamental and that's not that's not an airy fairy statement in international development as holding that brief it was so stark just to give you one statistic, if you include women on peace councils, the peace lasts. <laughs> you know, a third, you improve your odds of it surviving by um, over a third more than if you you hadn't had them included. So it is it is really important. And I've held the the Women and Equalities brief with some really interesting briefs. It was the first time it had been held by someone with an international facing brief. So I held it both in international development and also in defence. There was lots of scepticism when that first happened, but I think it was very, very powerful because I was able to take what we had learned in the UK and what we were doing on things like gender pay gap, on what we ended up producing, which was a roadmap for a woman throughout the whole course of her life, because we know... Even before someone gets into their first job, they're already facing massive discrimination in being paid less. All the hits that people take uh, throughout their life financially that accumulate in, in someone not being as resilient, their access to capital, the education opportunities that they get, and then what women are facing uh, around the world in conflict situations with um, you know appalling prejudice, lack of opportunities, FGM, violence, all of these things. We could really take what we had learnt here and we could help apply it around the world. And also, the other way around as well, we could take things that we had tried internationally and and apply them back home. And it was just a really amazing time. I mean, we could just bring people together who were working on all of these things and had previously been in silos together. And I'm really proud of some of the work we did.
0: You then took the Defence Portfolio. Was that a dream come true for you, given that you'd spent time, before you came into Parliament, volunteering in military operations through the Royal Naval Reserve?
1: It was an amazing opportunity. I had, as well as being Secretary of State and the first woman to do that, I had also been the first woman to be Minister for the Armed Forces. So it was a nice feeling going back into a department that I knew well and that I really loved. And of course, working with the military uh, is, is amazing. I mean, just every day is uh, an incredible privilege and uh, really amazing people to, to be with. I was aware on day one what a female secretary of state meant to a lot of people in the services, particularly women. When I arrived in my office, it, was, it had flowers in it from the navy women's network and uh, and others who for them it was I think it was a really proud moment. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago, and there was a, a lady there who she'd been an amazing trailblazer in the the r a f she'd she was a lot older than me she'd she'd had a full career in the service. she was quite an elderly woman and and she said, you know, we now know there's nothing that we can't do. And uh, I pointed out that I kind of stood on her shoulders, but I didn't really appreciate, I think, until I'd left the job how much it had meant to to some people.
0: And you left the job when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. He didn't reappoint you to that post. Can you talk about the impact of that on you? How did you feel about that?
1: I think I took it pretty well, actually, (laughs)
0: And uh, I I actually
1: wrote an article in um, the Spectator about that week, and I I just think you can't worry about the things you can't control. When he fired me, which you know is it's not an easy thing for someone to to do to fire someone, I I made it very easy for him, and I said you have my full support, and ditto to the chief whip, and. You know, let's crack on. You know, I think you just have to take that that attitude with things. He's entitled to pick his cabinet. No arguments over that whatsoever. I really want defence to have some stability. They've had a lot of secretaries of state. And uh, Ben Wallace is a good guy. You know, if I was in Boris's shoes, Ben would have been, a. you know, I think my choice for that job. He has my full support and I hope he does well. But I ha- have been back in uniform. So I I spent some of the late summer and early autumn with HMS Albion in my my new role with the Navy at sea with with her working up to go back out on operations and I'm now affiliated to MCM 2 squadron which is our mine countenance guys who are based in the Gulf and their their home base is my constituency so I think that's what we need to do whatever opportunities you're given find a way to to contribute that's my philosophy.
0: You use the expression, if you'd been in Boris's shoes, of course there was speculation that you should step into prime ministerial shoes. I'm not sure if the job comes with regulation footwear, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Uh, but at the time that Boris did become prime minister of the UK, there was speculation that you might run. Did you consider that? Why not go for it? Would you consider it in the future?
1: Well, I'm just trying to get the image out of my mind of... Uh Boris Johnson in uh, Theresa May's uh, leopard print kitten heels, if there is regulation footwear. But no, I mean, I, I take the view that if you're minded to do something, you should ask yourself, is it is it going to help? And I just felt at the time, we were in danger of having a leadership contest where you had a split of Brexiteers versus Remainers, which I thought would be very damaging for the party. I think we... We needed to ensure we kept the party a broad church. We had a home for, for both sides of that argument. And there were just an, there was an enormous field. And I just thought, this is just appalling optics <laughs> that informed my, my choice of, of whether to run or not and, and who I backed in the contest.
0: Are you in the never say never camp, though, for the future?
1: I'd say never say never, but ask yourself, does it help?
0: Across your time in Parliament, you seem to have had some fun as well as uh, uh, made huge contributions in your portfolios. Can you tell me about a speech where you use the words no more cock ups on hen welfare.
1: I have to admit I'm a potty mouthed sailor. I have mean, would never <laughs> pretended to be anything else. And this was this was Australian. a a mess fine. So I think I was fined at a naval d for, for not eating my salad or some other misdemeanor. So um saw an opportunity to pay my debt, as it were, in a speech about poultry welfare. But I, I do think if you want to do well at things you've got to also make them a bit of fun and uh, parliament I think it does need a bit of humour and it needs to uh, occasionally sort of brick its pomposity our buildings are designed to look like churches when you walk in there you're supposed to speak in whispers and occasionally I think we need to shake that up a bit and remember things that are perhaps more important than uh, some of the some of the rules that we are required to abide by
0: And so the bet here was that you could work words like cock and laid into a parliamentary speech. Yes,
1: I had that was that was the fine, and I pay my
0: debts. (laughs) Well done. Uh, Now we're going to move to the standard questions or the standard format questions that we ask people at the end of every podcast. So first is a fact. According to the latest biannual diversity statistics in the armed forces published by the government in 2018, 10.5% of the UK regular armed forces and 14.5% of future reserves are women. Do we need more women and how are we going to get them?
1: We do need more women and we need more women because it makes our armed forces more operationally effective. That's not just about the usual things we know about, diversity of thinking. It's also if you have, if you have women, the difference that they make if you're trying to deal with, for example, traumatised people. Uh, you're trying to deal with women who may have been raped in conflict situations. It's just a game changer if we're there and we're in the front line. The armed forces actually really recognise this and that's why they've had such a a push on trying to get the numbers up. The critical thing, though, is retaining women and all the issues you get in every other walk of life and in politics are doubly so in, in the military because the fact you're deployed, you're away from your family and all the things that also matter to you. And so the real game changer will be about retaining women for a full career. And this is why when we opened up other roles, um, including close combat roles to women. And I'm very proud that we've, we've done that because it will make us more effective. Why we took such care to ensure that the training that we were going to give people was the right training for women and women's bodies. Because if you set people up to fail or you physically break them, they're not going to have a full career. And by that, I mean more than eight years. You want women, if they're going to come into the services, to be able to take command, to, to progress up the ranks. And if you don't provide bespoke training for them, you won't get that. So that's what I've tried to do when I was min AF. We started to do that then and uh, what I hope will be continued in the armed forces because uh, we are the margin of victory.
0: What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Oh,
1: there's a lot to pick from. I think the worst I mean you I have suffered from as I'm sure many people listening to this all kinds of misogyny um from sexual advances to being dismissed or someone feeling that they can make comments about uh, your personal appearance but I I think the worst misogyny is the threats of violence and just that general attitude that uh, you're the the weaker sex and therefore can be bullied and threatened into submission. That's the worst. I think it's actually, in many respects, the easiest to deal with. <laughs> but uh, that's just horrible. And uh, I hope that in future we, we find a way to ensure that women don't have to put up with that uh, that sort of abuse.
0: The easiest to deal with in the sense that it's so blatant, whereas a lot of the rest of the experiences of women are, you know, it's happening to you, you know it's not right, but it's hard to get others to see it?
1: Yes, it's recognisable and there are ways of dealing with it. Uh, If if people have overstepped the the mark or the law, there are ways of dealing with that. I think some of the hardest things are the things that people probably wouldn't say are, you know, sexist. You know, oh, it's just so-and-so, it's just the way that they, they are, you know, grin and bear it that's harder to deal with. As I say, we need to find ways of recognising it and better ways to combat it.
0: If you got to rule the world for one day, what would be the thing you'd do for women?
1: Well, I think the problem is, and this is why I- I, I did the roadmap was that there if you if you just look at one thing you, you won't sort the problem out. There are so many things that we need to sort out. So having done the roadmap I'd say implement the roadmap for women in the UK and women everywhere. But I, I think the issue that I found the most shocking in terms of what women around the world have to cope with is violence. The volume of women that have as part of their everyday lives in some countries pretty much all women. And one of the things that I started to do at um, at international development was just measure the amount of resource that was going into combating violence against women around the world. Angelina Jolie has obviously been campaigning for 3% of uh, people's development budgets to be spent in that area. We do a lot in the UK, but we, we do a fraction of that. So I think if we If we look at that and we look at ways which we can reduce levels of violence in communities, there's some great work going on in schools. That would be one thing that I would really like to do more on.
0: Virginia Woolf says, as long as she thinks of a man, nobody objects to a woman thinking. What does Penny say?
1: I say, unless a woman thinks of herself, we're all stuffed.
0: (laughs) Elegantly put. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you.
1: you've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.